Hi everybody, this is Die Sports Behind the Pump. I'm Jason. And I'm Brody. And here we go with episode six. Uh, so Brody, uh, we've had a few, maybe a couple things happen, I guess, uh, coming up uh, in the world, especially here in BC. Um, right now we've got uh, schools are going to be starting here in a couple weeks. And a lot of parents are um, getting anxious, I guess. As you can say about sending sending their kids, actually, regular parents are sending or or getting anxious sending their kids to school. Um, but looking at all the Facebook groups and everything, uh, uh, all the uh, diabetic parents as well, um, you know, asking the questions: should they should they send their kids to school? Shouldn't they? You know, what type of precautions? All that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, I I think in in regards to everything, there's just a lot of uncertainty on how we go forward and how we continue on, especially in regards to to school and kids and and who are the future, as well as type one diabetic kids who are at risk for severity um, with severe mm, severe symptoms to, with COVID. Um, Personally, I don't have any kids, so my my anxiety is low uh, in regards to that. Um, however, I know both Jason and our guest today, Eric Dutcher, they both have kids, um, and I know Jason, you're obviously your kid, Curtis, is type one diabetic. Um, what what's your opinion on everything? Is Curtis going to be going back to school? Um, is there an option for homeschooling? Um, what what does it look like for you? What are the options? Uh, well, yeah, we looked at homeschooling. Um, I think, you know, obviously when everything shut down during the pandemic and we were all confined to our houses, um, we we took the approach uh, that the school was given out, which was which was the online courses. And once the schools had opened up again in June for the last three weeks of the year. Uh, Curtis did go back and uh, he definitely was more focused at school than he was at home. Uh, so going forward here this year, obviously uh, it, it had changed. There wasn't that many kids that, was, that had gone back in June. So we, we took the approach. We, we waited till all the information was out, back to school packages. Um, you know, he's going into grade six. So, you know, we, we've pretty much been, you know, practicing proper hand washing, social distancing, you know, you're within six feet. You know, if you, you got to get within six feet, you wear your mask. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, in British Columbia, masks aren't mandated for, for his age or for any of the school kids anyway. Um, but I think, you know, my for me personally, I, I'm okay – uh, with where we are, you know, we live in a small town. Um, I think you, you, you look at the chances are very low. I think there's more of a chance of myself traveling back and forth between Northern Alberta and, and Vancouver Island to, um, you know, to maybe catch COVID more so than him going to school. So um, I, I think that the relative, the relativity of him catching it is low. So, um, I think we made this decision to put a, send him back and, uh, you know, we'll see how, we'll see how the start of the year goes and, and go from there. And obviously with our situation, you can always readjust if we, if we got to take him out and homeschool him, well, hey, 
that's what we do, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I'm transitioning. I there, there's just so much um, uncertainty, like I said, in regards to structure of school, structure of organization, structure of sport leagues, and something that's relevant uh, for myself and I know Eric as well, competing as an endurance athlete. Um, how do we continue forward safely with our leagues and our events? Uh, what's been proposed for the Vancouver Island Soccer League, which I'm involved with, is dividing up the divisions. So, for example, my division, there's 12 teams, and they want to mimic sort of the bubble approach that other sport leagues have been doing. However, being an amateur sport league and everybody having to work jobs in order to generate income, um, they have to be out and about um, operating in society. So you can't just be sitting at your home or in your hotel um, and then go play your game and then you go back. And so what they proposed, the BISL proposed, is dividing the 12-team league up into four groups um or sorry three groups of four playing three games everybody plays each other once and then they have a two-week covid break to assess if there's any cases or yeah to assess everything and then mix up the groups and then everybody plays their three games in their new group and then do do another covid break um how realistic that is I'm, I'm not too sure. Um, and for someone like myself, being type one diabetic, I, I don't know um, if that's the best choice for me to participate um, in the league. Uh, so what my what I think I'm going to do is watch if things go through. They're still it's still up in the air. Um, was watch the first round see what happens and then reevaluate uh if i want to play or not so yeah i i think just covid has has messed everything up long story short <laughs> has messed everything up you know and of course i look at it like uh you know all all coming into uh, the end of August, you know, we, we've all been preparing um, uh, for hockey. We've all been preparing for tryouts. Um, you know, we, we've, we've all, we're, you know, everybody's been put in the pods. doesn't matter if you're, you're going to school um, or hockey school or, or soccer camps. Everybody's got their own pods. Um, and so far, I don't think it's, it's there hasn't been too many issues uh, with that. Um, obviously, the idea of the pods is is to one to limit the spread of the disease and two um, for contact tracing. And I think that's you know in I, I think that's that's the more anxiety that you had like you know with the parents sending their kids to school or sending them the sports or in your case going uh, going back to play. It's 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 that not knowing what's going to happen. Uh, once everything starts playing, right? It, it, it's one thing to have everybody in pods. It's great, you know, and 
you know, you can, you can isolate somebody quickly. It's, it's, it's the prevention stuff. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, and that, and that's kind of where we, we come from uh, when we sent Curtis back to school was that, listen, you know, it, you know, we're going to have to live our lives like this. We, I, I don't like living in fear. That's, that's one thing I do not. If, you know, it's, if, if you run into a roadblock, it's like, how do you, you know, you don't just go, you don't just go there and you just keep hitting yourself up against the wall. So how are you going to, how are you going to get over this block, this roadblock? Mm -hmm. Right. Well, you know, you know, what, what do they propose? You know, you wear your mask, you wash your hands, you social distance, you know, and that's, and that's what we taught Curtis, right. You know, instead of, you know, us being cooped up in our house, you know, you know, we'll go out, you know, we'll go out, we'll wear our masks, you know, we'll stay six feet away from where we can. And if we can't, we've got the masks on. Right. And of course, wash your hands and, and hand sanitizer and all that. Right. Yeah, exactly. And, and it, it's all about structure and, um, an organization um, that's relevant to our guest, Spartan Races, have come up with a structure um, and proposed um, ways that they're going to try to prevent the spread of COVID. And it's kind of on the guidelines of everything that's been going and, and with how do you how do you make a OCR, a obstacle course running event safe where people are going to be passing each other people are going to be on the same obstacle at the same time and and whatnot and so they kind of the way that they presented everything is to the first one is cleaning and sanitization so they reduce customer touch points to minimize physical interaction between racers and racers and event staff additional cleaning and sanitizing of customer touch points throughout the festival area including check-in Check-in areas, toilets, metal, shirt collection, results, payment collection points, and aid stations and obstacles. So I think it's just making sure they're hyper-cleaning everything, just being hyper-conscientious on cleaning and um, sanitation. And another one is personal protective equipment. So they're requiring all the staff and volunteers to have their face masks, which makes sense and in my opinion um, going back to the schools and teachers in BC I, I don't know why they wouldn't that make that mandatory for students to um, wear masks and 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 or shields for teachers um, they're going to try to going back to the race they're going to be social distancing so to manage the volume of racers on site, each racer will be given a specific arrival and departure time for entry and exit from the event to ensure total participant numbers at any time are kept under strict control. Customer throughout, or customers throughput will be monitored to ensure the number of people within the event space is kept to acceptable levels at all times. So they're going to be reducing the number of people on course, I believe, and the number of people just at each kind of section of the event. Um, and obviously they're gonna be doing screening, and which is probably one of the more important, um, screening the history of the, the racers, the, everybody involved um, in the event and making sure that they have no symptoms, they haven't been exposed to an area that had symptoms and, um, and whatnot. And I think being a, individual sport it's easier to do this because then you can separate people um and designate a time for racing and 
it's easier to kind of keep people apart because it's a you're you're on your own. Um, however, it, I think I believe it's harder to do that um, in an environment, let's say, comparing to the VISL where it's a team sport and where you're having your an amateur team sport where you have your guys that are working throughout the day and then they come and they interact um, uh, at practice or in the games. So I think it's good to see that organizations and um, different institutes and um, groups are trying to continue on with everyday life and put on these events that have meaning and um, give people hope and inspiration and happiness uh, into their lives and try to still um, operate safely. Um, yeah, I think going forward with all of our current events until COVID is solved, it's probably going to have a little taste of, of, of COVID. Anywho. Yeah, no, I, no, I definitely agree with that. So, um, yeah, you know, it, the same thing in all the amateur sports that, that, uh, you know, we've been dealing with and, and our ice times and that I've, I've been putting on and, uh, even the ice times we had, uh, with our, our diabetes group, uh, in Victoria, uh, you know, same thing. It's, it's along those exact same lines. And I think, uh, those, those guidelines and, uh, I know so far I think they seem to be working um, outside of um, maybe some of the soccer teams uh, mm -hmm. during the MLS startup. I think, uh, I think in most parts uh, uh, they've been working out pretty well. Yeah. yeah. So I think I, I, out of all that talking, I think uh, Brody, we've already alluded to our guest a, a few times. So a few times, uh, a few times. So why, why don't we, uh, you can go ahead and introduce. Yeah. Him. Yeah. That being said, um, like what we try to do here on behind the pump is bring in type one diabetics who are involved in um, athletics and striving for athletic achievements um, for a various different, for a number of different reasons. And so here it goes. So introducing our guest, Mr. Eric Dutcher. Hey, Eric. Hey guys. Good to hey. see you. Yeah. Good to see you. So Eric was diagnosed at 26 and spent a decade afraid of participating in athletic events until he caught the OCR fever at a 5K survival race in 2012. Since then, he has run over a dozen obstacle course races, including the 24-hour world's toughest mutter, Spartan's Beast, Bone Frogs Tier 1, and Conquer the Gauntlet Continuum. A multi-tool athlete, Eric has also completed in multiple. Mm -mm, a multi-tool athlete, Eric has also competed in multiple marathons, triathlons, and a half marathon. Additionally, Eric is pushing the diabetic envelope by auditioning for CBS, Survivor, and American Ninja Warrior. Recent, recently, Eric joined a Type One diabetic athlete who ran across Texas, 850 miles, to inspire and fundraise for the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation and American Diabetes Association. Eric has completed 110 miles in four days, the equivalent of four marathons. Wow, that's impressive. Never missing a chance for an athletic challenge, Eric has participated in events in London, Poland, and multiple cities across the country. Well, Mr. Eric, that's uh, reading that is quite impressive, especially being a type one diabetic. 
Yeah, thanks. It's uh, it's been <clears throat> a, a big journey, and it's been a lot of fun. So I, I think the the thing that I haven't put in there yet was I turned forty six this year. So um, I'm I'll be twenty years with diabetes, and on my forty sixth birthday, I I thought. I felt like I might have COVID, so I went out and I ran 46 miles to prove I didn't. <laughs> that, that's impressive. So uh, that why I mentioned at the beginning in your bio, your, you were diagnosed at 26. Would you mind taking us through your diagnosis story and um, everything leading up to it? Sure. So uh, at 26, you know, um, there's a lot of, uh, it's kind of a new phase for um, many people early on in a career, um, trying to establish themselves, uh, do a lot for the family. And by the way, that was a, a, a pump beep in the background. So um, no diabetic call is without one. That sounds uh, like a tandem. <laughs> it's an Omnipod. Omnipod. Oh. <laughs> But um, yeah, so the, you know, early in my career and um, I was having the ravishing thirst and the frequent urination, um, I dropped about 20 pounds from where I am today, uh, which was, uh, you know, pretty skinny um, and uh, went in and got diagnosed with uh, type 1 diabetes. Wow. Do you remember where you were when you got diagnosed? Do you remember that day? Yes, I do. It actually was a pretty memorable uh, time of my life. Just from, a, um, you know, I went to call my parents and let them know that I had been diagnosed with type 1. And um, when I called them, they said, well, we also have some news to share with you. And um, they shared with me that um, my dad's kidney cancer had uh, returned. So he had had a, a kidney removed and they tried to take out all of the cancer cells and um, they didn't get it all. And um, so he had a tumor again and he ended up uh, passing away a little bit later. So that point in my life was a really uh, tough time, a dark time. And, and there's a reason why I bring up on the bio that, you know, it sent me into such a dark place. Um, and I, I think that's just because it, it shows that, you know, for a lot of people, when they first get diagnosed, um, there's fear, there's a sense of loss. Um, there's a sense of now what, um, and, Oftentimes, what we hear from others around us is, oh, don't worry, you've got this, or you're a strong person, or, you know, so-and-so has diabetes, and look what they've done. And oftentimes, what happens is we completely gloss over the fact um, that there's a loss that people uh, need to be able to enter in and grieve. Mm -hmm. That's, yeah. yeah, I know. I definitely felt that, especially uh, when my son was diagnosed. You know, it was you know, not so much for him because obviously he was eight years old, not knowing kind of what was going on. Um, you know, myself, my wife, you know, it's, you know, obviously you're thinking about something that it was something that we did kind of thing, right? Or, you know, we could have prevented this, which, which obviously we couldn't. Um, you know, we, you know, I, neither one of us, you know, diabetes type one anyway, has, has never had in either of our families that we know of. So it was, it was completely out of the blue for us. And yeah, it's, it, it was one of those things where, 
you know, we, we've got a family picture of when we were all coming back from, uh, we were camping when he was diagnosed and, um, we had to drive back. We, we drove back four hours and we had stopped and taken a family family picture on the side of the road um, overlooking the Fraser Canyon. Um, and that, you know, we look at that, we look back at that now and that's basically our last picture before everything kind of crashed down, right? So, um, you know, and, and, and you can see yeah, after the fact, you know, after we learned everything about diabetes and everything that went on, and, and you look at that picture and you look at it at the way he was and, and you can definitely tell the signs were there. And obviously we didn't know and we couldn't tell. Right. But um, yeah, you just see it, it. You hear that news. It's just, you, you always go right to that, right to that dark spot. And it's, I, I think, you know, for myself, it, it took me, I was probably a lot quicker than maybe some other people might've been. Um, you know, I was, you know, by nature, and I, and I think I alluded to it earlier in the uh, talking about the schools is, is you know, you know, you, you get a roadblock. It's it's you know, you're not going to sit there and you're going to keep hammering. It's like, hey, how do you get over this roadblock? Or you know, some you know somebody well, life throws you a curveball. What do you do, right? You know, you you, you hit it. <laughs> so you know, it's it's you, you gotta, you know, for for me, it's it's finding that way to to get over the to get over the wall you know, to hit that curveball, um, you know, not, not to dwell on, you know, geez, they're throwing another curveball, right. Or, you know, I'm getting a curveball. So, you know, you're just going to sit there and dwell on that. It's how you get past that. That, that, that kind of mentality helped me out getting through um, that time uh, with Curtis. And then with that, with that strength, it helped me help my wife get over it. And then we were able to focus on, okay, what kind of care does he need to get back to where he needs to be for living his life? And, you know, you know, obviously we had gone on, um, you know, he was, he was on Dexcom within, I think, oh, maybe, I think it was about three weeks. He was on a Dexcom and, you know, he was on a pump. He, was a, he started out on the Omnipod within about a month and a half because we had learned everything about carb counting and, and doing all the, uh, all the, um, the manual stuff with the injections. So, we were able to get on a pump right away as well. And so he returned back to school, back to, back to competing within, I think it was about two months after his diagnosis. So um, that, that's what kind of helped us out. And I know everybody else, everybody's different and how they handle it. And, um, um, and, and yeah, some people are going to take time and, you know, obviously with yourself, you had more than just your diabetes diagnosis and, you know, it's, it's great to hear that uh, you know, you're able to overcome that uh, afterwards. So what, what drew you to endurance racing? Um, yeah, you know, it was, um, you know, I, after the 10 years and um, I had exited, uh, uh, you know, a, a dark time period of my, my life. I uh, had gone through a divorce and um, job change and, um got into the counseling, um, found my way kind of back to the world, um, uh, church. I met my, my wife, Heather, um, and, uh, in conversations with her, you know, I would describe things about my diabetes and I would say, yeah, but I can't do that or, but I can't do this. And she said, well, you know, what if you ask the question instead, what if? 
Um, what if you started doing endurance runs or what if you started doing obstacle course races and um, that just that simple flip of I can't to what if allowed my mind to kind of shift to this um, method of really breaking everything down and saying, really, the only thing I can't do in life is, you know, produce my own insulin. Everything else is really, um, it's a modification and I just need to operate my life on manual. And I started out on small and uh, small obstacle course racing because especially for events like Tough Mudder, it was very team building and it was very rewarding to feel that sense of community around you. Um, and I really lacked community in my life for that, that first 10 years. And that sense of community and being around people, like it, nobody wakes up, no grumpy people wake up in the morning and say, yay, I want to go slug through three miles of mud. Um, and really, once I had done one obstacle course, it began, um, well, what, what could I do? Can I do two laps of this obstacle course? Or, um, and it ultimately led me to the question of, can I do an obstacle course race for 24 hours? Um, and I was able to by building a community around it. That's, that's awesome. Did you, when you are competing, are you hooked up to your pump or do you go on like a, a temp basal or do you, do you disconnect? Yeah, there's a lot of people that um, will, I think the way everyone manages it is, is pretty individual. Um, I leave my pump on. Um, because I, I have the Omnipod. I'm not worried about a tube getting caught on uh, barbed wire or anything that I'm crawling through or um, attaching to the top of a wall and, and then being my repelling rope on the way down probably wouldn't work very well. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I know a lot of people that, that will do races without the pump. So I'll typically put in a temporary basal before the event really based on how intense my cardio is going to be. And um, if I'm going to be going, let's say it's a really longer event, then I'm liable to put in a, a temporary basal um, of 85% uh, reduction. Um, and if it's more of a shorter event where I'm going to be um, getting my heart rate a little bit more elevated, I'll typically do um, 50%. And what I'm trying to do by that is I'm trying to match the, um, the way that my uh, body would normally, uh, if I produced insulin, um, you know, try to um, manage um, my blood sugar. You know, 85% of my energy would come from carbs uh, in a low tier heart rate situation. Mm -hmm. Whereas if I'm doing high intensity work, you know, I would only do a 10% um, basal reduction because um, that's more correlated to the activity. Right. That, that's a more of a, a technical terminology of controlling your diabetes. How do you use sport and passion to control your diabetes? Well, it's, uh, it's amazing. I'll, I'll never forget probably my, my most perfect, like flat line, um, blood sugar day came one day after I ran a marathon. Um, and 
you know, you don't always get that for sure, but there is a certain element that when I'm exercising my, it, it rounds the edges uh, for me more. So the roller coaster doesn't go as high or as low. Um, my mood doesn't go as low. Um, and there's a, a certain element of, um, you know, just having that, that endorphin and, and that feeling of accomplishment um, because nobody can take away whatever I've achieved that day when I've gone out and achieved something. And, you know, I can tell exactly, like, if I, if I want to say I'm going to go three miles today, and it may just be walking three miles, I can go out and I will walk three miles. It's a definite. Whereas with diabetes, it's an indefinite. Even if I know exactly what bolus I think I need to use, what carbs I'm eating, the timeline it's going to hit both the food and the insulin. If I know my stress level, if I know the heat and everything else, there's still no way that I'm going to have a certain blood sugar at the end of that. But my exercise was certain and it was an accomplishment that I can be proud of. That being said, um, you sound like a pretty motivated guy currently a motivated guy. Um, and whatever, th everything that you just said is very relatable. And, and um, I feel that too, when I exercise, it's like rounding the edges and, um, and obviously there's mental health aspects of being type one diabetic. And you have those days where you, you feel down in the dumps, right. And, um, and by exercising and producing those endorphins it just makes those days so much better and and more you know it's yeah it's it's you just feel great you feel a lot better and it picks you up um that being said what what motivates you um a race uh which has made uh this time period a, a little bit more um interesting you know i uh, my nature really is, you know, I want to achieve something. I want to have something to look forward to. Um, and, you know, I know there's a complete difference in my exercise schedule when I'm preparing for an event and when I don't have one, uh, which is why I, I encourage people that I coach, you know, to not you know, so many people, when you talk to them, they say, oh, I want to start getting exercise. I eventually want to do, you know, a 5K, um, but I'm not there yet. Like, I'm, I'm not ready yet to complete that 5K. Where do I start? And the place to start is actually to sign up for the 5K. Because if you're waiting to get started, you're never going to get started. Um, but if you put that race out there, then now you've got a target that you're going for. Mm -hmm. So as races have kind of come and gone uh, during this time period, you know, I was supposed to actually do an Ironman, a uh, full Ironman, which is a two mile swim, 116 mile bike, and a, a full marathon at the end. I was supposed to do that in April and that got pushed back. Um, and you know, right as soon as it got pushed back, all the training that I had been doing and building up for it really started tapering off uh, pretty dramatically. And then now, 
we've got supposedly it's been pushed back to October 17th and I'm supposed to compete on October 17th. Well, you know, about two weeks ago, I said, well, I haven't been in a pool and I don't know how long. So I got to go get swimming again. And, um, you know, it took me a while. You know, the first time I went out there, I did 300 yards and I thought I was going to, you know, die in the water. But, you know, within a week or a week and a half, I was swimming two miles and going, wow, I guess that wasn't really that bad. So I think really what motivates me is, is something that is positive and something that is excited, exciting for me out there on the horizon. So that just that daily routine of exercise has something else to it, some other purpose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, having those goals and or micro goals uh, brings happiness to your life. eh? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, Yeah. relatable. So with all your training, Eric, um, have you had any scary diabetic incidents? Any bad bad lows? uh, Anything like that while training or uh, at rest? Yeah, so... um, I, I have a uh, kind of a conference level speech that I do and I've, I've got this beautiful slide on it and it's, it's got, uh, you know, someone diving in the pool and up in the top hand corner, it says uh, it's got the number 400. And I tell everyone, see, you know, I, the reason why you should listen to me as an expert is because I have 400 first place finishes in athletic events. And usually there's like a, like nervous looking around of like, is that for real? And then I'm like, no, it's not for real at all. So the story of the 400 is, um, you know, I, when I wanted to start doing triathlons for the first time, I always dreamed of doing an Ironman when I was a kid. Like I watched it on ABC World World of Sports and I thought, wow, this is a really cool thing. But at some point you lose your dreams, you forget you're a child or, and you become an adult and you take everything that you dreamed about as a child and you just kind of lock it in a box and forget about it. And then diabetes just stole the key for a while too. So I started doing these, um, you know, triathlons and you start at a sprint and it's, it's very short, uh, takes probably about 45 minutes to complete. And then I went to the next level And then I went to an Olympic uh, event, which is about a three to four hour event to do. And as I'm showing up early in the morning, I'm setting up my bike and I'm kind of getting everything ready. I've probably taken a goo gel and I look next to me and there's a guy with an insulin pump on. And I'm like, yes, this guy's got experience. So I, I talked to him and he's like, oh, yeah, you know, this is what I do. I've done 12 of these Olympic uh, triathlons. No worries. Here's my program. And in a minute, I took everything that I'd known, wadded it up, threw out the window, and adopted his plan. So I jump in the water, and I'm at 300. And the water's cold. I'm in a wetsuit. And I feel like my lungs just collapse. And, like, I'm flapping around, and then... I kind of get away from where everybody's jumping in the water. And then just like a few feet away, I start hearing, you know, and there's this guy like just waving down like the kayak saying, rescue me. And I'm like, oh man, this is me next. 
and you actually had to do two loops in the water. So I started flipping over on my back and, you know, just kind of pushing my way along in the water. And eventually I was able to turn over and really start swimming. But man, I, I felt awful. And it, it took everything I had to not exit the water after that first loop. But I kept going. And when I exited the water, you can actually, there's this photo of me. I'm just beat red. I look completely um, exhausted. And I get back to my bike and I go and I do a manual stick because Dexcom doesn't read through water. The blue uh, Bluetooth doesn't reach through it. Um, so I had no idea where I was and I was over 400 and, um, the, the scary thing about that was, you know, that's, that's really thick blood that you're sending through your veins. It's really dangerous to be, um, at that level. You know, you could have ketones and everything else, but I was able to add some insulin. I was able to get on my bike and I completed that three to four hour race. The other number on that slide is a 44. And this was last year when we were um, doing uh, uh, more unstoppable diabetics with Project MUD. And I, I had flown to Denver to gather a group of diabetics and their family members to go on their first MUD run. It was my way of kind of providing coaching to help people feel a more unstoppable life by completing their first MUD run. And, you know, we got the diabetics beforehand, everyone tested their blood sugar, everyone checked their insulin on board, everyone had everything in order. And about a mile into the race, I start feeling really bad, like really nauseous. And my Dexcom has been buzzing, but it's in a waterproof bag in my, um, you know, on, on a camelback on my back. So I haven't really been paying attention to it. So I do a finger stick check and I'm 44 uh, and now my Dexcom's coming online and it's 44 double arrow down. And here I was, nice. I had been paying attention to somebody else, uh, everybody else, but me in that moment. But, you know, you know how diabetes is. I just slammed down to goo gels right there. And within about 10 minutes, I, you know, we could start walking and, um, you know, we ended up finishing the race together. And that was kind of, I was the only one with the scary moment in there and I was supposed <laughs> to be the expert. But I think that's kind of the, I think the scary moments, if you don't allow yourself to experience the scary moments, you'll never get the experience and the learnings that you have that will cause growth in your life. Exactly. And you mentioned live unstoppable life, living an unstoppable life. What does that mean? And how do you live an unstoppable life with diabetes? Yeah, I think for me, it really centered around that question of what if, um, what is a modification I need to do, um, to not let diabetes stop me in this moment? Um, I remember when I was stepping up from a 5K race to a, um, a, a full Tough Mudder, which at the time was like a 13-miler, you know, I, I was searching out, looking for people to who could give me ideas and facts on, you know, this is what you do when, um, 
you're running a race. This is the modifications you need to make. And there's a difference in like getting educated, um, finding community members that can be supportive, um, finding mental health coaches or life coaches like myself. Really, if you can build uh, the, a, you know, a team around what you're doing, you can accomplish quite amazing things. And um, the great thing about it is, is that the bigger the, the challenge, the larger the team, and at the end, the greater number of high fives and, and feeling of success um, that comes at the end of the day from it. So for me, being unstoppable was really about a, an, a journey that allowed me to feel weak um, allowed me to suffer the grief of being diabetic early on and finding my own way out of there. And then being able to sit with other people who have, are in that situation presently and then helping them step out and go, you know what? I was stopping myself and I really didn't have to. And the craziest thing about it is that the times that I can think of that are significant in my life where I didn't see diabetes anywhere around are actually some of the craziest, biggest things that I've ever done. Um, you know, uh, when I'm running across uh, West Texas with Don Muchow, you know, I had to check my blood sugars, sure. But in that moment, we were out there you know, looking at the, the West Texas landscape and, and talking to each other and spending time uh, enjoying conversation. And yes, diabetes was part of it, but it fell to the background. You know, when I went with Matt Sil Silvio, who I know you've had on the show and, and we're running the world's toughest mutter, you know, at some point, you, at some point, the task that you put in front of yourself, the 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 goal or the the situation that you're in and it can be anything it doesn't have to be athletic achievement but whatever it is can be so big that you actually forget that you're diabetic and that's a pretty cool place to be mm -hmm. yeah i yeah i can relate to that for sure and i'm i'm sure curtis jason will will come across that feeling at some point in his his life as well too and that's that's what i love about uh team sports is that um it doesn't matter any any sort of worry or concern it doesn't have to be type 1 um diabetes just disappears it dissipates and mm -hmm. the only thing that you're focusing on is the task at hand and um the people around you and your teammates and and that and that feeling and, and there's no other worries in the world. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and team sports is great. Like we have, I have, uh, you know, clients or, or, you know, one of the big questions that comes up a lot of times is there'll be, you know, younger athletes, younger diabetic athletes, and they'll get frustrated because they're like, Oh man, I had to go to the sideline or I had to sit on the bench um, because my blood sugar was dropping. And I had to make an adjustment to, I had to drink some orange juice or I had to take some glucose tabs. And man, that put me on the bench when I wanted to be out on the field. But the reality is, is 
everybody, whether they're diabetic or not, is on the bench for some period of time, or they're sitting out for some period of time. And if we look at it as we're specialized athletes, just like anyone else, we're modified athletes, we're adapted athletes. And at some point, we're not going to be the right player to be on the field at the time. And if we can remember that, then we're allowed the freedom to just focus on ourselves and getting ourselves to the level of we are going to be the right person to be on the field. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that hit home with, uh, well, with Curtis last season. Um, and it was, you know, my, well, my son's goalie. So he's on the ice the whole time. And so he, he doesn't get a break unless it's in between periods or whatever. Um, and it was in, we were playing uh, up in Campbell River. And we, he was, he was in this game. And in the certain particular arena that we were in, you know, usually I have, because he's got his, his, uh, his, his cell phone's always on him um, in his supply belt on the ice. Uh, so we can always see his blood sugar. So if there is something that needs to be corrected or whatever, the, himself for the trainer, he can call him over during the period or whatever, and he can have his, have his juice. But it was just this particular arena, there was no cell phone service. So it was just his Dexcom transmitting to his uh, to his phone. So we're in the middle of the game, and, and, and he can kind of – and it was, it was one of those – you can kind of tell it was kind of a panic situation because the play was going on, and all of a sudden we know that his – we heard it on the ice is uh, his – Alarm go off because he's low, or dropping. His alarm points is three point nine mmls, and you know he. So that was the panic, and that was the first time. Uh, so he's panicking. He's you know he's he's trying to get everybody's attention that he's, you know he's he's dropping or whatever. And and I think that one moment was the referee saw him, and he blew his whistle, stopped the game right away, and uh, so he was able to get over and have his juice and and referee and it was a young referee and and you know what he was uh uh thankfully for him that he had the you know we're like oh yeah you know it's great he blew the whistle he he recognized or whatever um but right afterwards he come up and you know informed my son that he was also a type 1 diabetic Mm. so he was he was on the ice so he knew exactly what it what it was what was going on and was able and it it just kind of clicked with him right there he's like you know ever since then he wasn't he wasn't in that mad dash. He knew, he knew that he'd be able to get over and uh, and he'd be okay. And, and he's never really bothered him since, you know, especially now with it, with him being with COVID, he's been on the ice. He was, he was basically one of the first ones on the ice when everything opened. Um, you know, he's basically managing his diabetes pretty much by himself now, right? So uh, while he's on the ice, you know, he takes his juice box out. He's got his water bottle because they're not allowed anything out there anyway. And, uh, you know, I, I – drop them off and I pick them up now, which is, which is really good um, for, for him being two years and, and learn and having to learn everything. And, and he, he's finally in that place where he's comfortable just managing himself and he's fine with it. Right. So, but it was right up until that moment uh, that I, that I could tell that, that everything changed. Right. So. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and to add, he's only 10 years old. And he's only 10 years old. Yes. Yeah. Turning, that, turning 11 at the end of the month. Yeah, that's impressive. Yeah, he's uh, just by looking at him, Jason, in pictures, um, you can just tell the way that he holds himself that he looks 10 going on 16. And he acts like it. 
yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, talking to you, Eric, so far and, and just hearing how you articulate things and the way that you hold, you hold yourself and the things that you have overcome and the accomplishment that you have done. Uh, yeah. You seem like a, a superhuman for sure. Um, where, where does the take chronic superhuman come from? So chronic superhuman um, came out of a, a place of uh, talking with other people in the diabetic community around um, what uh, people would appear uh, or feel broken um, or damaged. Um, I think we sometimes don't expand our, our thought enough to think about diabetes from the perspective of a culture other than our own. And, um, and there are many diabetics that, that are, were born into cultures where, um, you know, people are unfairly evaluated based on uh, qualities that they have, um, whether it be for arranged marriages or, um, you know, business leaders. Um, there are just cert certain cultures that are, are very, um, you know, uh, can quickly label people broken or damaged goods. Mm -hmm. And while we can sit here and we can look and say, you know what, there is a part of our body that is not functioning. Uh, we simply do not have the beta cells that, that are producing insulin that somebody else does. But in thinking through that, um, what that means is that we're actually operating our body on manual mode, meaning we are taking something that we didn't have within our body and we are creating it externally. And so we actually have, instead of being less than or broken or damaged, we're actually more than. Um, and because we're chronic, you know, it's a chronic illness, it's not going away. It's something we live with every day. Um, you know, it's omnipresent. It starts to build this extra ability around us. And some of us operate with a greater sense of urgency because if we don't react to a sugar or if we don't react to, you know, um, something that we need to do, you know, we could end up in a bad situation medically. Or some of us are more empathetic with others who also live with um, tough medical conditions because we live with one. Um, and we may have not had that level of empathy if we uh, weren't already diagnosed with a chronic condition. Um, many diabetics are more data driven because we're looking at a lot more data, um, better at math because we're actually doing you know, diabetes calculus all the time. So we've created this actually superhuman element to who we are. And so we should never look at ourselves as being less than, but more than. We're extra human or superhuman. So we're chronic superhuman. And I think the biggest thing that I've tried to make sure that everyone know knows is that that's a we, that's not a me. Like 
sure, it's great that I went out and ran 46 miles on my birthday. And when I would turn 46, you know, that feels pretty superhuman, Mike, right? But there are parents every day that are doing, conducting, you know, a manual pancreas, um, you know, like Jason is for their kids. Um, you're playing soccer. Um, there's, you know, business leaders that are operating with, um, you know, with their bodies on manual mode. There's a whole list of things that um, we do as diabetics that really make us superhuman. And we should own our successes and not compare our successes to others. Because the more that we can actually own our success, the more empowered and the more superhuman we'll actually feel. Yeah, yeah, that, that hits home for me quite a bit. It actually makes me a little bit emotional, <laughs> for sure. Oh, I did definitely, Brody, and, you know, you, you're, you're dealing with it now, you know, obviously, you know, with, with the stuff that you're doing and, and, and trying to get back into, I know we were talking before the show about some opportunities for you coming up and, you know, for, for you to get there. And I know, you know, and I can imagine that th those opportunities, a lot of them come from the stuff that we're doing right now with Diasport and, you know, helping, you know, get, get through that, um, that roadblock that you were dealing with and, you know, you, you went a long time and I know we, we talked about it in the first show, um, you know, you, you didn't share with anybody, right? Your condition um, while you were playing, right? And, mm -hmm. you know, you felt it as, as much of a weakness um, than a strength, right? So, you know, now, right now, you know, you, you're, you're going to have a great opportunity coming up and, you, you've got that mindset now that it's 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 not it's not a weakness but a strength, right? And you know, I, I, and I applaud what you're doing. Uh, you know, the, the opportunities that you're you're going to have. So, and you got to make some decisions as well. Yeah. Um, some tough decisions, but uh, yeah, definitely. And like and like you said, like you said with Curtis, it was with him. It was a it was a light switch, right? It was, you know, he went from not having a care in the world to you know having try to manage himself to stay alive, right? And you know, and half of that was having to do math at, you know, complex math at a lot younger age and a lot of his, uh, his uh, classmates, right? So, yeah, there are de definitely a lot more to being uh, a, a T1D than uh, um, uh, everyone lets on, I guess. Yeah, uh, then meets the eye. Yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. That goes with the saying is um, T1D looks like me. You betcha. Yeah, for sure. So, Eric, I know you got uh, you got a few initiatives on the go. Um, uh, I don't know which one you want to start with. You want to uh, describe a lot. Of, uh, there's a couple of your initiatives that, that uh, I think we got up here. Um, um, you can start with either one. Um, but what, what's it about? And, yeah. So, um, well, let me, uh, yeah, I'll start with the, the diabetes coaching. So, um, my wife and I, uh, have always wanted to, uh, own a business together. Uh, that was something that, uh, we've always thought would be fun. And, um, it actually, you know, part of starting a business is always, uh, uh, 
coming up with the name is is a fun element of it. And uh, we were on vacation in Hawaii, and we're driving around um, to go to the backside of the island uh, in Hawaii. And uh, right alongside the road is is a rooster that is walking around on one leg. And um, and I was like, oh yeah, look, there's a wounded rooster. And we drive for a little bit longer, and I'm like, man, that's a good that's a good name for a band, Wounded Rooster. And then we started coming up with all these different businesses that would be pretty, pretty fun to, to call Wounded Rooster, like, uh, you know, Snow Cone Place, you're in Hawaii, Hawaiian Ice. I mean, Wounded Rooster, like who wouldn't crinkle their nose at getting a, a cherry red slush at a place called the Wounded Rooster? I'm wondering, especially if we called it, you know, Rooster Blood Red type thing. So, you know, we had some fun moments with it. Um, but then fast forward to um, my wife was uh, a CPA for 30 years um, when she really went through some, um, uh, we went through some things at, at the church and did some detail into um, personality and, and gifts that we had and really kind of went to her heart that she should become a counselor and um, really went down that path, went back to school and I kind of was living vicariously through it. And we'd talk about the classes and um, I started going down a, a path of life coaching and now we're starting to build this business together where I do life coaching for diabetics. Um, she's a, a licensed professional counselor intern, but basically I can help on, you know, everything diabetes related. And I focus a lot on relationships, your relationship to diabetes, your relationship to child, parent to child, uh, spouse to spouse, um, family to uh, uh, individual. Um, relationships with diabetes, as well as, you know, I can go sit on a sideline with uh, parents that are um, teaching their child how to, or, or they're teaching themselves how to help their kid um, exercise. Some of the things I do is, you know, get kids back to pool parties who have been restricted from going to the pool because of, of diabetes. But if there's things that go into deeper issues like uh, family of origin, um, narrative, things that are deeply embedded, embedded uh, depression, uh, anxiety that can come along with diabetes. Uh, my wife can also see them, but has the awareness of, of the diabetic impact um, from living with me and, and going through the journey with me as well. So we started a blog and when we went to name the blog, we said, you know what, Wounded Rooster might actually be the perfect name of the blog and it ended up being the perfect name for the blog because there's a there's a story in 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 the bible and i know everybody's not on a faith journey i think everybody's faith journey or journey um with the spiritual realm is is individual and and they should enjoy it but there's a story in the bible um pretty pivotal where um as jesus is being persecuted you know peter slips away and um Christ has died and, you know, or, or has been captured and he's, you know, he's trying to, um, you know, distance himself from God. And, you know, um, Jesus is, says, you know, before 
the cock crows three times in the morning, you will have denied me. And sure enough, the next morning, Peter's kind of um, moping around on the side of the lake and um, really broken. And he hears the rooster crow three times. And then on the third time, he wakes up and he's like, oh, my gosh, this is what God was talking about. And it propelled his life forward into a completely new direction because he was able to see his brokenness. And in that brokenness, he was able to grow. And um, we all have roosters in our lives. Um, we just don't always pay attention to them. We don't always hear them crowing. And you know, um, those, those roosters are areas of brokenness, things that we shouldn't feel broken, but we allow them to be, you know, for me, honestly, um, when I was first diagnosed, uh, you know, I said I was pursuing the career. I was managing a lot of the stuff at home. And frankly, I thought I was unlovable if I wasn't doing something right. Like that. I couldn't just be loved for who I was, um, just because I was, I didn't, I was undeserving of love. And I felt like I had to perform to earn love. And it was diabetes ended up being my rooster because the only way that I couldn't perform was if diabetes knocked me on my butt and I had to lay there and treat a low. So that's been the rooster that has woken up my life to live more of this unstoppable life because, you know, I, I did athletics before I was diabetic you know, I swam and, and I did some baseball and tennis and basketball. Um, but all of my athletic accomplishments, all of my big athletic accomplishments have actually happened after I was diagnosed with diabetes. Speaking of. <laughs> yeah. That's the, uh, it's a screaming pod. What are we going to do? I'll throw that in the freezer. Quick. Throw it right in the freezer. <laughs> That's what we did with ours. Uh, so yep. and there's, there's another initiative that you, uh, that you have, Eric. What, what's, the, uh, what's the other one? So Project Nuobetic is, is actually not my init initiative, but it's one of those things that um, I believe firmly living into um, other people's dreams. You know, running across Texas, that wasn't my dream, but I lived into Don's dream and came alongside him and helped him. Project Nuobetic was a dream um, from T1D Addy, and, um, or T1 Addy, um, and Project Nuobetic is uh, really centered around making sure that there's education resources for newly diagnosed patients. Right. And so um, she uh, reached out to Instagram influencers and asked if they wouldn't mind creating a shirt for, um, you know, sell with all the proceeds from the shirts going to purchase Think Like a Pancreas for uh, newly diagnosed diabetics. And uh, it was an initiative that I thought was a great initiative. I, I really firmly believe in the power of education. I believe in the power of community um, in helping with diabetes. And um, 
so I, I stepped in and, and created a, a chronic superhuman shirt. Um, and so those are available uh, for sale through my bio and they help her initiative of, of Project Newabetic, which is really on providing educational resources in the form of a book for newly diagnosed patients. Oh, that's right on. And, and I know that's, that's a lot of the reason why, you know, we started up uh, Diasport was, uh, um, you know, when my son was diagnosed, it was one of those things where you try to get information, you know, he's a hockey player and, and you try to get information on, you know, sport specific um, information on diabetes and that and there was just absolutely nothing um, that, that we'd found outside of Max Donnelly playing hockey. And uh, so, yeah, that, that's, that's part of the initiative that uh, we've got here with Diasport is to, uh, is to help kids, you know, how you said that, you know, you, you talk to athletes that have to go off the sideline to have a, uh, to treat the low is we're trying to educate manager diabetes so that you don't have to miss that big moment on the field, on the ice. Um, right. So that, that's where kind of we step in and, and, you know, help educate athletes on how to manage your diabetes uh, during the sport. So, um, yeah, and, and that was something that we definitely found uh, lacking in Western Canada, for sure. Um, and then that's why, like I said, we're, why we're doing this. And uh, obviously with COVID-19, it, it allowed us to experiment with this platform, um, which now we, we've gone into our, our sixth episode and, carrying on strong uh, with Brody and myself and, you know, definitely meeting a lot of interesting, interesting people out there uh, in the diabetes world and in the diabetes athlete, athletic world. Um, you know, we've, we've talked to quite a few and I know we've got a few more guests lined up uh, along the way that, uh, you know, all seem to have the similar, similar type of story, you know, with their, with their diagnosis and, and, coming up um, and how they manage and how they manage their diabetes and uh, basically the releases, you know, the, you know, how, how they can, I guess, like, uh, what do you say, how they can uh, release their mind uh, from having to worry about their diabetes all the time. Right. So um, it, it's definitely been interesting over the past few months. And I know I'm looking forward to definitely reaching out for more diabetics like yourself, Eric, this has been a great, learning experience for yeah sure. for sure um yeah definitely yeah well, I, I would encourage y'all to you know keep going i i think that the big thing is, you know I, I think a lot of people when they start um whether it's advocacy or they start uh, even you know artists or anyone when they're at the beginning of a journey of of um sharing their story it's going to feel you know, it, it's going to feel like, uh, I wish I could do this better or, or, um, you know, I, there's, there's this tendency to be hypercritical or, um, look at somebody's, you know, 1000th, you know, podcast and, and say, I'm going to compare my sixth podcast to their 1000th. And, um, you know, I would just encourage you to keep going. I think it's, it's, this is perfect. Six is my favorite number, you know, being podcast six, I think that it makes perfect sense. And, um, you know, I, I, I 
supports you in your journey. And I think it's great that you're doing it because when we're out there and we're sharing our story, um, if you can just be vulnerable and really share it from a place of uh, truth and this is my truth and this is what I struggled with, um, that can open the doors to many conversations because a lot of people are really afraid of showing um, that vulnerability. And um, when we open ourselves up and start sharing our story, we never really know who we're going to touch. And I always encourage people all the time that they ask me about, uh, well, you know, um, how do you feel about the fact that there's other diabetes coaches? I'm like, well, that's great. Like, I never want to compete or feel like I'm competing with another diabetes coach. And in fact, like I'm constantly promoting other diabetes coach because frankly, there's just not enough. There's not enough diabetes podcasts. There's not enough diabetes coaches. There's not enough people talking about the tough issues that we face or, or being vulnerable out there. Um, there's probably too much of, Hey, you can do anything like, uh, and there's probably too much rah, rah, and probably not enough of, you know what? I had a really sucky day and, and diabetes really won today mm. uh, and stopping there. I think everyone feels the need a little bit too much to follow that statement by, um, yeah, but I'm going to get them tomorrow. I don't think you always have to say that. Yeah. I think what we need to do is be able to embrace the darkness and sit in it and feel it and allow that emotion to come through because eventually once you've sat in the darkness long enough, that's when you're going to start seeing the crack of light that's going to help find your way out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Totally, totally agree. Yeah. And every, yeah, I, I didn't think that I would respond um, this way to an episode talking to you because everything that you have said um, has related de deeply with me in regards to um, how you um, felt and responded to your diagnosis. And um, yes, we were diagnosed at different ages. I was 13, you were 26, but we're, we're still human and feel all the same things. Um, and I, 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 I thank you for, for what you um, have said to us. Um, and, and yeah, and, and coming on and talking to us and being real and, and not just saying, yeah, you can do anything, rah, rah, rah. And um, I actually have never heard um, someone um, say the opposite of that, that it doesn't necessarily need to be like that. And accepting the dark days, as you said, and the, um, the dark side of diabetes, because that is um, inevitable because it's such a changing, um, disease and, and, um, you're going to face it at some point. It's, uh, how do you respond to it and preparing yourself? How do you, um, respond to those, those times? Um, yeah. And, and that, that being said, uh, my last question for you before we take off is if you had one piece of advice for others living with diabetes, what would it be? Make life an experiment. Um, nobody gets angry when they've experimented with something and it doesn't work. And you always learn 
something from doing an experiment. And so if you can approach ideas, um, big things, small things, everything really is just, hey, I'm gonna experiment with walking around the block and see what, see what happens. Or I'm gonna experiment with getting some paint in a canvas and, and see what happens. You're gonna learn something in the process and what you might learn is that you have been an expert in it all along. Thank you for that. So yeah, th thanks Eric for joining us again. Um, it's definitely been enlightening. Uh, I'd like to say, Brody, you got anything left to say? Yeah, no, all, all I have to say is thanks and thanks for being patient with us and thanks for coming on and, and speaking the truth. You bet. And uh, I look forward to uh, hearing your 100th episode when it comes. That's right. There we go. All right. Well, that's, that's all we have here. Dive Sports Behind the Pump. Join us uh, next time uh, with Jason and Brody. Cheers. Cheers.